Welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host, Shantae Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. Once again, I have had a very interesting start to my day. I won't go into it today. (laughs) But I am happy to be alive. I'm happy to be in the land of the living. I'm happy to be having a now peaceful day. But I just uh, felt like, felt what it was like to have to be on demand. I'll just say that, be on demand. Today, we're going to be looking at some historically black American icons who attended HBCUs. We're going to look at another icon in the book, Isn't Her Grace Amazing? The Women Who Changed Gospel Music. And then we are going to hop into, let's see, we're going to do some Black Theology and Black Power today. We're going to read a little bit more on the premises for Black Theology and Black Liberation Theology. So let's start first with the historically Black American icons who attended HBCUs. Obviously, we're not going to get to everyone, but we do want to try to get to as many as we possibly can. When we think about HBCUs, most people automatically think about Mary McLeod Bethune. I think when when you see or when you hear HBCU, her name is probably the most connected She's probably the most recognizable face when it comes to those who started HBCUs, her and Booker T. Washington. Mary McLeod Bethune was an educator and diplomat, and she attended Scotia Seminary. She was one of America's most formidable educators and diplomats. She founded Bethune-Cookman College, served as president of the National Association of Colored Women, formed the Federal Council of Negro Affairs, and advised five presidents. While Bethune's parents were born enslaved, once emancipated, her mother and father saved enough money to purchase five acres of land from their former enslaver. Bethune was the 15th of 17 children, and all the children lent a hand in the fields, including five-year-old Bethune. When it was harvesting season, she picked cotton 10 hours a day. Although she did what she was asked of, Without complaint, she sensed a different life on the horizon. When she turned seven, a mission teacher visited the family farm and announced the opening of a school five miles away. Bethune begged her father to let her attend. He was reluctant. The farm demanded all the help he could get, but he eventually relented. Along with a handful of other black students, Bethune walked those five miles every single day. By fifth grade, she had not only learned to read and write, but had taught her older brothers to read and write as well. With her knowledge of math, she helped her father and other farmers, even some of the white ones, calculate fair prices for their cotton. But the mission school's curriculum did not extend beyond the fifth grade. If Bethune wanted to continue her education, she had to attend Scotia Seminary, the country's first historically black women's institution of higher learning. It sounded like heaven to the young Bethune, but her parents couldn't afford the tuition. She returned to the farm. 
It was a year before she received a scholarship from a benefactor wishing to support the education of Black Southerners. When Bethune arrived at Scotia Seminary, she was singularly focused on her education. She maintained such a strict schedule that peers called her the bell ringer of Scotia. When she graduated, her benefactor was so impressed that she agreed to finance Bethune's education at the Dwight Moody Institute for Home and Foreign Missions. Dwight Moody prepared students to lead mission schools like the one Bethune had attended in her own hometown. Upon completing her studies, she returned to the South, determined to educate Black Southern girls like herself. In 1904, she established the Educational and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. Her initial headcount came in at six students, five girls and one boy, her son. Within a year, enrollment reached 30. Bethune sustained this growth by persuading wealthy businessmen to join her school's board of trustees. These relationships widened her pool of investors, and in 1931, she merged the all-girls school with the all-boys school. Cookman Institute, forming the co-educational Bethune-Cookman College. She served as the college's first president and led the institution for 11 years. There's a reason why so many schools throughout the nation bear her name. Outside her work in education, Bethune also exhibited an adeptness in diplomacy. Soon after being elected president of the National Association of Colored Women, she led the organization in acquiring a headquarters in Washington, D.C. This move made the National Association of Colored Women the first Black-controlled organization with a headquarters in the capital. Ten years later, she founded the National Council of Negro Women, bringing together 28 organizations with the express purpose of improving the lives of Black women and their communities. And during President Franklin's D. Roosevelt's administration, she formed the Federal Council of Negro Affairs, also known as the Black Cabinet, to advise the president on issues pertaining to Black Americans. She'd go on to advise four more sitting U.S. presidents during her lifetime. One of the things that Bethune said, invest in the human soul. Who knows, it might be a diamond in the rough. Um, I I know of several people who have uh, graduated from Bethune-Cookman University or BCC Bethune-Cookman when it was a college. Um, One of my cousins is a Bethune-Cookman University graduate. Schools named after Mary McLeod Bethune. Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune Middle School in Math and Science Technology Magnet in L.A., Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary School in California, Bethune Academy in Haines City, Florida, I know where that is, Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Mary M. Bethune Elementary School in Hollywood, Florida, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary School in Riviera Beach, Florida, Mary McLeod Bethune Middle School in Decatur, Georgia, or Decatur, depending on how you pronounce it, Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary Charter School in New Orleans, Louisiana, Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary Middle School in Detroit, Michigan, Mary McLeod Bethune Community School Arts Magnet in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Mary McLeod Bethune Pre-K through 8 in Cleveland, Ohio, Mary McLeod Bethune School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Bethune Bowman Middle School in Roseville, South Carolina, and Mary McLeod Bethune Elementary School in Dallas, Texas. All right, let's see. 
let's roll on over to the New Negroes, college years 1900 to 1939. By the turn of the century, the expansion of black secondary schools reduced the need for HBCUs to maintain preparatory academies. In mass, black colleges and universities redirected their funds to post-secondary degree-granting programs. This administrative move became the catalyst for a period of black scholarship in arts, known by some as the New Negro Movement, but mostly by others as the Harlem Renaissance. Contributions to this period were not confined to Harlem, as student populations at HBCU skyrocketed 533% from 1914 to 1925. HBCUs throughout the nation were encouraging students and professors to produce art and scholarship. Howard, Lincoln, Fisk, and Wilberforce are just a few examples. This uptick in enrollment was in part due to the financial assistance HBCUs received from the federal government. Following the enactment of the second Morrell Act in 1890, seed money was allocated to found new HBCUs, as well as to provide already established private HBCUs additional support, bringing them under public control. The colleges and universities that received these contributions came to be known as land-grant institutions and often specialized in agricultural, mechanical, and industrial disciplines. In other words, we're granting you seed money so that you can strengthen these particular disciplines. And if you think about it, these disciplines came out of what the formerly enslaved were already sort of master craftsmen at right? So it made sense for them to want to support universities that added these particular disciplines in there. Many HBCUs still retain the names, if not the missions, of these earlier land-grant colleges. The Telltale A&M or A&T, Agricultural and Mechanical, or Agricultural and Technical, respectively, like Florida A&M University, they still do have an agricultural and mechanical program there. With new funding, schools poured money into students' education. They created more demanding curriculums and expanded their graduate programs. They provided financial support for the arts and established clubs and sports teams. They ushered in an entirely new generation of the Negroes. Now, in this section, we do have Zora Neale Hurston. I won't go into her today. I will save her for tomorrow. I want to look at Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman. A lot of people have not heard of Howard Thurman, though he did influence lots of people that we know of today, such as Martin Luther King. Howard Thurman was a philosopher and theologian. He attended Morehouse College. Howard Thurman was a leading philosopher and theologian who relied not on charismatic, show-stopping oratory, but quite quiet power to shift the minds and hearts of followers. A pensive person by nature, Thurman exhibited a partiality for the inner life at a young age. As a child, he took no greater pleasure than in communing with nature spending hours in the quiet aliveness of the woods. He read extensively and thought deeply about the Bible. Thurman was a bright student, but his education was nearly thwarted before it started. 
In Daytona, Florida, where he grew up, there was no school for black children beyond the seventh grade. Now, this is um, relatively common during this time. So a lot of your grandparents and probably even some now of your great grandparents will probably say, I only got a third or fourth grade education, or they might say, I only went to school up into the seventh or the eighth grade, which was pretty common back then because that was pretty much the level of education that was extended to those who were newly freed or their direct descendants of um, the newly freed. But you also have to understand too, my great grandfather, um, he was taught by, um, I believe, Hampton and Howard University professors. They, they actually came into the rural area and they taught them. And he too supposedly got up to an eighth grade education. But as I'm talking to my great aunts, um, they were saying, no, they were educating them at that point in time like they were in college. So it's not the same education that we think of today where everything is sort of break it, broken down into like really, really small chunks. No, they were teaching them full-fledged. <laughs> like they were telling me like my great-grandfather was able to teach them things like calculus and physics because of what he had been taught by the people who came into their rural community to teach them. So it's when we think of seventh grade, eighth grade, it's not the same kind of education that they were getting that students are getting today. So I just want to make that um, clarification. The county was determined not to finance a black high school and achieved this by preventing black students from obtaining an eighth grade education. Thurman's principal, a black man, was so impressed by the boy's intellect that he volunteered to teach Thurman the eighth grade curriculum himself. When it was time for Thurman to sit for the end of course exam, the county's white superintendent insisted on administering it. Thurman, even at such a young age, kept his head down, finished the exam, and scored high marks. Still, the county refused to integrate its high school. Years later, Thurman would write in his seminal book, Jesus and the Disinherited, arguing that Jesus' teachings are best interpreted through the experiences of the oppressed. One wonders how his early education experience informed this groundbreaking interpretation. Thurman had to enroll at the Florida Baptist Academy of Jacksonville, a private boarding school two hours away. His family struggled to pay the tuition, but he managed to graduate as valedictorian and was admitted into Morehouse College. Morehouse was founded by the American Baptist Missionary Society, and by the time Thurman applied, had a long-standing tradition of granting a tuition scholarship to any student who graduated as valedictorian from a Baptist secondary school. Thurman paid nothing to attend. At Morehouse, he found a like-minded introvert in James Nabritt, a serious thinker who'd go on to win several arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court as a civil rights attorney and serve as president of Howard University. The two challenged each other intellectually. Hungry for knowledge, they made a pact to read every book in Morehouse's library. Nabritt started at the top and Thurman worked his way up from the bottom. They worked their way across until the pact was done. At Morehouse, Thurman came out of his shell. He joined the debating society senior year when the college decided to publish its first ever senior yearbook, The Torch. 
he was elected editor. He graduated Morehouse as valedictorian and went on to study at Rochester Theological Seminary, now known as Crozier. Always the contemplative lone thinker, Thurman found himself once again navigating intellectual roads less traveled. In 1932, he became the first dean of Rankin Chapel at Howard University, and in 1935, his curiosity led him to India, where he met with Mahatma Gandhi to discuss non-violent modes of resistance. In 1944, he founded the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, where he served as co-pastor with a white minister. This was an unprecedented partnership at the time. In 1953, he became the first black dean of a chapel at a majority white institution when he accepted the position at Boston University. Throughout his life, Thurman's quiet power girded all of his efforts, allowing him to instill change in his patient and radical way. By the time he died, he'd influenced many of the civil rights leaders in the movement, including James Farmer, A.J. Must, Joseph E. Lowry, and Martin Luther King Jr., who more than likely would have heard about him at Boston University, where he attended. All right. So that is Howard Thurman. I recommend you grab the book, Jesus and the Disinherited. We may, I'm thinking about maybe having us read some of that for season two, season 12, but we'll see. All right, we're back in the book, Isn't Her Grace Amazing? The Women Who Changed Gospel Music. And we are looking at dun, 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 the architect's. The Architects of the Melody. Look at that fabulous shot. Who can tell me who that is? Type on the screen if you know. Before I say her name. I'll give you a few seconds. We're not going to start with her. But that was the opening the opening that was American gospel singer Shirley Caesar and her group the Caesar Singers during a concert at Brooklyn's Friendship Baptist Church in New York November 28 1987 we are going to start this section off with Dorothy Norwood I was introduced to Dorothy Norwood by my husband very powerful singer. Dorothy Norwood is thankfully still alive. She was born in May 29th, on May 29th, 1935 in Atlanta, Georgia. Notable gospel hits, The Denied Mother, her super famous gospel hit, Shake the Devil Off, and The Storm is Almost Gone. Her awards and accolades, five gold albums, Numerous Dove, Grammy, and Stellar Award nominations. <clears throat> when you hear the steady beat of the tambourine and the warm humming of the organ in Dorothy Norwood's classic, The Denied Mother, you can't help but feel like you are in a southern tent revival in the middle of a summer evening. Norwood's strong alto takes the congregation through a triumphant testimony of a mother who overcomes the impossible to raise her daughter and crescendos into a fiery call and response version of Precious Lord, 
Take My Hand, with her talented background singers. While this song is nearly 13 minutes long, you will still want to hear Norwood croon and bring forth the good news of the gospel a little while longer. Dorothy Norwood is one of those gospel singers who sung out of her gut, shared the Reverend Barbara Riley, an accomplished pastor and songwriter of the gospel hit, I Hear the Music in the Air with Vicki Winans. I had a teacher who didn't like gospel music because she said it sounded like the gutter. I disagreed with her because in truth, that's what singers like Dorothy Norwood were trying to do. They were singing their way literally out of the gutter. Known throughout the gospel industry as the world's greatest storyteller, Dorothy is a full-bodied, down-home singer and a preacher who can take you from the depths of the most challenging situations in the human experience. And by the end of her concerts, you are sure enough reminded of God's promise to heal, transform, and deliver. <clears throat> Young Dorothy began her musical journey with her family at the tender age of eight in her hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. She was awarded a scholarship to Morris Brown College, and after completing her degree, she had a dream about becoming a gospel singer and moving to Chicago. That dream came to fruition in 1956 when she moved to Chicago and began singing with the legendary Mahalia Jackson and the Reverend James Cleveland. She caught Jackson's ear at the 44th Street Baptist Church when someone sent a note to Jackson that Dorothy was in the room and that she could blow. That was the definite term back then. Dorothy indeed blew Jackson away, and the legendary singer invited a young Dorothy on the road with her for six months. After touring with Jackson, Dorothy returned to Chicago and joined the Reverend Clay Evans Church and became a featured soloist with the hymn, Low is the Way. She became so loved for that solo that the church members started calling her Low. Soon, Dorothy caught the ear of the Caravan's founder, Albertina Walker, and became part of the dynamic lineup that included Shirley Caesar and Inez Andrews. Before she was recruited, Dorothy was working at a hamburger shack, making $30 a week. So when the offer came to sing with the Caravan's for $30 a night, she was grateful for the opportunity to use her gift for the glory of God. What began setting Dorothy apart was her keen ability to tell a good story with each song. Many women gospel singers used their platforms to express themselves as the natural preachers that they were, Riley said. When Dorothy's solo career took off in 1964, she was more than ready to share her gift of both the preach word and the powerful message through song. Her first album, Johnny and Jesus, was certified gold and her follow-up record, A Denied Mother, became an instant classic with its hopeful message of encouragement to black mothers everywhere. Dorothy's career soon soared beyond the church walls as she was invited to be the opening act for the Rolling Stones for a 30-city U.S. tour in 1972. Dorothy has successfully released more than two dozen albums on the Malico and Savoy gospel labels, including a gold-selling reunion album with the caravans in 2006. She has continued to top the gospel charts and has become a staple for many gospel concerts and tours. Much like her caravan sister, the Reverend Shirley Caesar, Dorothy shows no sign of slowing down and gives her audience exactly what they want. More of her classic stories and songs about the good news of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
All right. Let's look at another gospel, as they call them, architect of the melody, Marion Williams. Now, I should know this singer, but I do not know her. I probably know her music more than I know her name. We'll see. But her hometown is Miami, Florida. Marion Williams. And Marion has the signature gold tooth. Big thing if you live in Florida, especially in Miami, especially back in the 80s and the 90s, gold teeth were the thing, right? Marion was born August 29th, 1927, and she passed away and made her tra transition July 2nd, 1994. Her hometown was Miami, Florida. Notable gospel hits, Surely God is Able, Standing Here Wondering Which Way to Go, Packing Up, How I Got Over, The Day is Past and Gone. She has been a recipient or was a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Kennedy Center Honors in 1993. She was the first singer and gospel artist to receive a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. She was inducted into the Philadelphia Walk of Fame in 1994. Her album, Prayer Changes Things, won a Grand Prix du Disque in France in 1976. Her recording of How I Got Over sold more than a million copies, copies and she served as a musical ambassador for the U.S. State Department. Very cool. To hear Marion Williams' powerful voice at the climax of her signature hit, Packing Up, is the equivalent of experiencing electric joy in motion. During one of her televised performances of this song, the legendary singer became so ignited with her praise that she almost lost her clip-on ponytail in the process. Boy, that's some footage I want to see. <laughs> Marion became known for reaching the highest heights of her soprano range and turning any gospel song into a solid gold hit. Now, come on, people. You know you have not really gone in until you've lost a wig, a clip-on ponytail, or something of the such like. Um, I remember one time I was having a great old time in the Lord. And uh, yeah, when I came to, somebody was bringing my purse from one end of the church. Somebody was bringing my shoes from another side of the church. It was just a great, wonderful time in him. So you got to have at least one of those memorable experiences in your life, right? <clears throat> Marion became known for reaching the highest heights of her soprano range and turning any gospel song into a solid gold hit. When I'm singing, I get inspired by God, she said in a 1980 interview with the New York Times. I call it the anointing. It's an extra special thing. When the inspiration of God is missing, I just rely on my talent. This Southern girl was born in Miami, Florida, one of 11 children, and was one of only three of her siblings who made it past their first year of life. Wow. She began singing at the age of three at the local Church of God and was inspired by, inspired by Sister Rosetta Tharp and the Smith Jubilee Singers. By the time Marion became a teenager, she was singing on the weekends in storefront churches and revivals, and she gained a reputation as a top soloist throughout Miami. Marion was a constant student of several genres of music, including jazz, opera, and blues, but her heart was always set on becoming a gospel singer. 
I don't have nothing against other people in what they do, but I don't want no part of singing secular music, she said in a 1993 interview. I was offered $100,000 to make one blues record, and I turned it down. I sing for the Lord, and that's enough for me. Marion's great vocal range was recognized by Clara and Gertrude Ward when she was visiting her sister in Philadelphia in 1946. A year later, Marion joined the Ward Singers and became one of their lead soloists. Her first song with the group was How Far Am I From Canaan? In 1948, this was soon followed by Surely God Is Able. The song skyrocketed the group into fame throughout the gospel arena. Marion was a star attraction in the Ward Singers until her departure in 1958. From the Ward Singers, Marion moved on to perform with the Stars of Faith. The group recorded for Savoy and Charlie Records. The Stars of Faith found huge success with an appearance in the Broadway musical Black Nativity in 1961, written by the incomparable Langston Hughes. The play featured an all-black cast and was the first Broadway musical to incorporate gospel music. Marion was truly a song stylist, said Tim Dillinger. Each of her concerts was an experience where she never replicated her sound, and the audience was always mesmerized because you never knew where she would take a song. After the whirlwind success of Black Nativity, Marion embarked on a solo career. She toured throughout the United States, Europe, and Africa in the 1960s. She became so popular that the U.S. State Department sponsored her tour of Africa in 1966. Throughout the late 1960s and 1970s, Marion recorded for several labels, including Epic, Columbia, and Savoy. She scored huge hits with the singles Wondering, Someone Bigger Than You and I, and Holy Ghost Don't Leave Me. Marion's goal was always to reach outside the walls, Dillinger shared. Her expansive reach led to more than a dozen solo albums, and she was a guest soloist in 1992 for the Lincoln Center's Avery Fisher Hall premiere of Wynton Marsalis' gospel-influenced jazz suite, In This House, On This Morning. When Marion was honored by the MacArthur Foundation in 1993, the foundation noted that she was among the last surviving links the gospel's golden age, one of the most versatile singers of her generation. All right. On Friday, we'll come back and we will talk about Shirley Caesar. They've got a really, really, really um, extensive biography of her in this, which is wonderful. So we are going to cover her on Friday. All right, let's look at our last work for tonight today before I turn it over to you. Perspectives on Black Theology. Perspectives on Black Theology. We're going to read on the section entitled Religious Authority. And then we will stop there. On religious authority, does black liberation theology have religious authority? That's the question that was posed. The question of authority has been and still is in some circles a much debated religious question. 
if you watched and listened to um, my Sunday dialogue where I took you through literally the history of America's early integration of religion, denominations, Protestant, Anglican, um, Dutch reform. If you took a listen to that Sunday dialogue, you would know why Western Christianity doesn't have a leg to stand on when it talks about whether or not someone else's theology is legitimate or authoritative. I encourage you to go watch. You're going to learn a whole lot about Western Christianity's enmeshment, entanglement with enslavement. So this has always been, ever since this was introduced, it has been a debated religious question. Protestant Christianity was born because Martin Luther denied the absolute authority of the Pope in religious matters. And believe it or not, there are still two streams of thought when it comes to this. There are, um, in Western Christianity, there are the Baptists who don't believe in um, the medieval hierarchical structure that was established that there is a Pope and that he is God's representative on earth and everyone else falls under that. That is a hierarchical structure. And guess what? Bishops fall under him too. So there is that stream. And then there are people like the Baptists who say, we do not believe in this Pope medieval hierarchical structure and y'all can keep that. Mm -hmm. So those who follow Martin Luther's stream deny the absolute authority of the Pope in religious matters. Now the Pope made some statements a couple of years back about it being time to bring everybody back underneath the papacy fold. And there was a lot of reaction to that, like, eh, 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 I don't think so, buddy. <laughs> but ultimately, they really do think that all of these streams are supposed to come back under the fold of the papacy. And let me tell you, if that happens, it's going to be some, it ain't going to be pretty. I'll say that. Ultimate and absolute authority in matters of faith can and must reside only in the word of God. That is what James Cone believes. That is what a lot of us believe. Who was made flesh, died, and rose again for our salvation and abides forever in his ecclesia. In him and through him, God has spoken to men. Here only have we the unmistakable voice of God unimpeded in its utterance by the weakness of sinful nature and the fallibility of sinful human thought. For Luther, Christ alone is supreme authority and the scripture is second only to Christ. Within Protestantism, liberalism, fundamentalism, and neo-orthodoxy have exhorted and exerted much time and energy discussing this question. Fundamentalists, sometimes referred to as conservatives, emphasize the verbal inspiration of scripture and locate final authority in the infallibility of the text itself. Well, there are people who say, no, the text is not infallible because so many hands have been on it. It's gone through different translations. 
Um, if you study church history, you know that it took a while. It took like hundreds of years for certain things to be accepted into what we now call the canon. So there are people who don't believe in the infallibility of the text itself. The, strip, the scripture is God's word in that, quote, by a special supernatural extraordinary influence of the Holy Ghost, the sacred writers have been guided in their writing in such a way as while their humanity was not superseded, it was so dominated that their words became at the same time the words of God and thus in every case in all alike infallible. Now, that's a huge statement, but the reality is it's an untrue statement. Again, just study church history and you'll see how many ways that the word or the text could possibly have some fallacies in it. Human error, because none of these people were perfect. So liberals would be much freer in their treatment of the Bible. Certainly they would not agree that the scripture is infallible or is the supreme authority on matters of faith. They would be more inclined to emphasize the place of reason in matters of faith and life. The neo-Orthodox theologians would emphasize the authority of God's disclosure of himself in Jesus Christ. They seem to represent the Reformation theology of the 17th century as expressed in Luther and Calvin. Now we know that, um, and we talked about this on Sunday, we know that the Calvinists believed in the doctrine of predestination. Well, if you say some people are doomed to hell and some people are doomed to heaven, no matter what they say or do, then that definitely would justify enslavement. Yeah, because, hey, it doesn't matter if I enslave people. If I feel like I'm destined to go to heaven, it doesn't matter what I do here in the earth. Something to think about. In more recent times, the question of religious authority is not discussed in the way that it used to be. In the past, especially among the fundamentalist liberals and the neo-Orthodox theologians, it was essentially a private debate amongst religious scholars, abstracted from real life in the world. Politically, in America at least, it did not matter whose side one supported. None of the positions threatened the basic structure of the nation. Now, however, Religious thinkers have begun to relate theological walk to worldly talk, and some have even begun to question the way men live in the society. This is clearly seen in the writings of William Sloan Coffin Jr., the Yale University chaplain. He not only wrote about it, but acted in such a manner that he was tried, convicted, and sentenced for his illegal draft counseling. In a less dramatic fashion, the rise of the death of God theology means that religious authority not only involves one participation in a churchly community, but equally in the secular community. It is within this larger context of the world that we are to understand black theology and religious authority. The discussion of authority must depart from the abstract debate among fundamentalists, liberalists, and neo-Orthodox thinkers. Though there are expressions of these three major streams of Protestant thought within the Black Church, Black theology sees a prior authority that unites all Black people 
and transcends these theological differences. It is this common experience among Black people in America that Black theology elevates as the test of truth. Mm. To put it simply, mm. Black theology knows no authority more binding than the experience of oppression itself. This alone is the ultimate authority in religious matters. Concretely, this means that Black theology is not prepared to accept any doctrine of God, man, Christ, or scripture, which contradicts the Black demand for freedom now. It believes that any religious idea which exalts Black dignity and creates a restless drive for freedom must be affirmed. All ideas which are opposed to the struggle for Black self-determination or are irrelevant to the struggle of Black determination, to it must be rejected as the work of the Antichrist. <laughs> James Cone says, if you're, not about the if you're not about the life of Black freedom, if you're not about the life of Black self-determination, if your gospel runs contrary to that, if your gospel wants black people to suppress their blackness, it must be rejected as a work of the Antichrist. I'm going to agree. <laughs> Just tell you straight up. I'm going to have to agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, this does not mean that black theology makes the experience of Christ secondary to the black experience of oppression. But rather, it means that black people have come to know Christ precisely because of their oppression, because he has made himself synonymous with black oppression. To deny the reality of black oppression and to affirm some other reality is to deny Christ. In other words, to say things like, I'm not black, I'm Christian, or I don't want to be seen as a black actor. I'm just an actor. It's to deny reality and put yourself into a delusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through Christ, black people have come to know not only who he is, but also who they are and what they must do about that which would make them nothings. When the question is asked, on what authority? In the last resort, do we base our claim that this is or that doctrine is part of the gospel and therefore true? Black theology must say, if the doctrine is compatible with or enhances the drive for black freedom, then it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the doctrine is against or indifferent to the essence of blackness as expressed in black power, then it is the work of the Antichrist. It is as simple as that. Black theology is not prepared to discuss the doctrine of God, man, Christ, church, Holy Spirit without making each doctrine an analysis of the emancipation of black people. It believes that in this time, in this moment and situation, all Christian doctrines must be interpreted in such a manner that they unreservedly say something to black people who are living under unbearable oppression. So that was the premise for the authority of this theology. Next time we will look at the eschatology. What do they believe about the future?
What do they believe about the end times? Because we know what white Christianity believes about the end times. They believe that, hey, black people should wait. <laughs> they should wait to be treated fairly in the by and by. They should wait until they get to heaven to experience equality. That is what white Western Christianity teaches and has taught. And in some instances is still teaching. You should just wait until eternity comes. Meanwhile, we're going to fight for our rights on the earth while we tell you to just wait on it. All right. That is my reading for today. I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you have been listening by Anchor, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. And I've been your host, Shantae Charles. I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you are watching by live stream, I invite you to come and join me for conversation by clicking on the camera with the plus sign. If you'd like to give some of your thoughts and input on any of the readings today, we talked about Howard Thurman and Mary McLeod Bethune. We talked about Dorothy Norwood as well and Marion Williams in the gospel music industry. And we've talked a little bit about Black liberation theologies authority to say and believe what they say and believe. Awesome. So again, if you're listening by podcast, we are signing out with you, but I want to thank you for your time and attention. Take care, be well, and be light.